You're listening to the Weekend Collective Podcast from Newstalk ZB. Friend of the show, I think we could call him, Peter Dunn's with us. G'day, Peter. Hi, Tim. How are you? Not too bad. Are you having a you having a sort of are you away somewhere different for King's birthday? No, or? no, in Wellington for King's birthday. I'm having a quiet weekend with family. It's always nice when everyone else leaves town, isn't it? Yes, it is actually. It's um, although Wellington's pretty busy this weekend. Just looking out the window at the cars trotting by, but it is nice when you feel as though everyone else has gone away and left you in peace and quiet. Mm. Hey, um, let's get on to the ACT Party conference first. Mm. This thing that uh, this thing about unnecessary regulation, from your observations as a commentator, but also as a politician for many years, is he onto something with this? Because there have been former ministers before for deregulation, whether they had a ministry or not. Yeah. So is he onto something? Yes. Well, when they when the ACT Party was part of the last national led government um, for a period anyway, while he was still around, Rodney Hyde was the minister for cutting regulations. I'm not sure it was proved to be that effective. But there is an issue there, and, and one of the reasons is a lot of New Zealand's regulations get made. This is not necessarily legislation that's passed by Parliament, but regulations made pursuant to legislation. A lot of them uh, remain on the books long after their relevance has passed, and uh, a lot of them could be scrapped without any noticeable impact immediately. We just don't seem to put an expiry date on them. I mean, are they having an impact? I mean, if they're sitting there sort of not doing any, they're not very useful, are they also causing a problem? Yes, no. They're not, they're not causing an active problem, but every now and then things crop up uh, which fall subject to those regulations, even though the regulations may have long ceased to be relevant many years earlier. So I think it would, it's a good idea to have a sunset clause on regulations. It's a good idea to do a, a spring clean every now and then to make sure that unnecessary, irrelevant or regulations that are being rendered redundant by changes of circumstances are removed. How excited do you think people get about this stuff? Because we have heard ACT talk about red tape, and there's a kind of irony, almost Monty Python-esque, that they're creating a ministry to... (laughs) The Ministry of Regulations. I couldn't think of a more bureaucratic organisation. There is an irony, and people don't get excited about it until it affects them when they suddenly find that they can't do something rather because of some obscure ancient regulation, that's when they get annoyed. But if you're having a sort of a good spring clean every now and then, I don't think you necessarily need a ministry. You need a small dedicated team and a minister who's got the mandate to be able to, to, be able to work it through. But it's not going to excite the public. It's not going to win them votes. Is, is it something that's also got the potential to sow a bit of discord that you've got this sort of um, hit squad ministry going through other ministries, just um, requiring ministers to sort of be ministries to be interrogated on their spending and their regulations. Oh, I actually think it could work the other way. It could work. It could work positively. Oh, yeah. Because I think there's a real tendency when when ministries find that they've been given powers by legislation, how to actually make these work or enforce them? Oh, we better pass a regulation. Often the regulation's not needed. Often the regulation is put there just to sort of give them some backup authority. And I think if they were being held to account more rigorously about why do you need this regulation, what's it actually doing, you may find a number of proposals to regulate cease to come forward, which would be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right, though. There could also be a bit of um, why they're poking their nose into our business. There are far worse problems in other departments. But that's probably not a bad thing to have anyway. Is there also a, a role in this sort of approach to just target the the quality of government spending? I mean, the obvious um, example that springs to my mind is the $1.9 billion announced for mental health didn't announce in a single extra um, acute mental health bed. 
Yeah, I look, that's, a, that's another far more important issue. Look, it's, it's, it's not just the quality of government spending, it's the size of it and the direction of it. And it seems to me one of the things that's missing in this government is someone who's got that overall responsibility to keep an eye on what's being allocated, what's being spent, and how relevant it is. It, it, uh, what they seem to have done is taken all of this in-house to the Minister of Finance's office, and he can't, with the best will in the world, keep a, a complete oversight on all of these things. And I think that's a real area of deficiency. The mental health thing is, is the classic example, but there have been others in the law and order area. And I think you'll find if you dug deep enough, there are a lot of them all over the show, really, where yeah. poor quality spending, poor direction, and money essentially going to waste. Yeah. Do you get the sense with this announcement, it's a little bit like um, Labor's Congress. They put out some policy which wasn't particularly exciting. This is not. This didn't even feel new to me from ACT. Is that because really this is a big rah-rah for the political, um, you know, the people within the party, and they're saving the serious policy for when the election really kicks into gear? Yeah, absolutely. What the election year congresses are about is enthusing the troops, making sure they're going to go out there and do all the hard work in the yeah. next uh, four or five months, giving them something to sort of go with. But it's not really about winning the voters over. That comes during the campaign. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to um, maybe perhaps, if I can use a cliche, the week that was. Mm. Just starting with Jan Tanetti. Um, now, I've got a quote. Um, I'm just, I've got a quote from um, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins when he was interviewed, I think, on One News. In fact, I'm just checking my, my producer, Joe's got that ready to go. This is his response to the questions about what a big deal this was. So just have a listen to this, Peter. I think some people pay, you know, spend a lot more time obsessing about parliamentary standing orders than others. Um, as somebody who has done a lot of that in the past, um, I wouldn't necessarily hold everybody to the same standards in that regard. I wouldn't necessarily hold everyone else to the same standards in that regard. Um, I put that down to gaslighting that this doesn't matter. Yeah, look, this, this is a very interesting issue. I suspect when the, when the dust settles, it's more cock-up than conspiracy. But there are a couple of questions that arise from that that, mm. that need to be answered. If it is just a cock-up, how come no one spotted it early on and got the minister to do She could have done the following day, gone down to the House, Mr Speaker, point of order, yesterday I gave an incorrect answer, which mm. I would like to correct today. Matter all over, you know, at that point. But the fact that they kept on and on and pretending it wasn't an issue, and now, now it appears that the minister's office knew but didn't tell her, and now it appears that the prime minister's office knew and not sure whether they told the Prime Minister or the Minister of Education or neither. The whole thing looks extraordinarily messy, and a big issue blows up out of a comparatively small and straightforward matter that, as I say, could have been resolved within 24 hours. Well, I mean, she was told straight after, wasn't she? You got that wrong. Yeah. And then she pretends... Yeah, but... I, I did an editorial earlier in the week where I, I, I sort of lightheartedly said her biggest defence was seeming not to even know that, what the rules were. But I think that's, that, that's, that's the thing in a nutshell. Um, you might excuse a minister who's comparatively new to Parliament for not knowing what the rules are. I'm a bit dubious about that, but let's yeah. give her the benefit of the doubt. But there should be people in her office saying to her, Minister, you can't do this. It's against standing orders. You need to do the following. Mm. And the fact that that wasn't being pushed, and even so, when you now hear that the, the Prime Minister's office was in the know that they weren't saying either to the Prime Minister or to Minister Tanetti, look, this has got to be tidied up quickly. Uh, that raises some real questions as to what they were playing at. And it does make you wonder whether there was a bit of a deliberate campaign either to say, oh, we'll just tough this out, 
or it doesn't really matter, we can get away with it. Well, because the look, the question was all about, did you delay the release of those mm, that yeah. news to, to time with your... Tr- so basically, were you playing politics with this announcement? Mm. And to it, it's like they couldn't bear to admit that. Mm, we- yes, and this, look, this government, one of it, I think it's failings, is it's never admitted anything. It's never made a mistake in its, throughout its tenure. And that's just not possible. And I think there was a time for some humility, and this was it. And the fact that Minister Tanetti, who I think is quite a reasonable person, from my dealings with her, mm. couldn't get up and say, look, I'm sorry, I got that wrong, just speaks volumes for their whole attitude. Mm. What are the possible consequences of this? What is the privilege... Com- what, are, what can the... Pri- pri- I can't even say the word, the Privileges Committee. What can they do? Well, it's in many senses, it's, it can do anything. It's one of the most powerful courts in the land. What's it likely to do, though? It's, bear in mind it's got a government majority on it. Mm. It may find her in contempt of Parliament, in which case it could issue a censure or some other form of sort of symbolic penalty. But I suspect they will be under a fair amount of pressure, not to acquit her because she can't be acquitted, it's too obvious, but to find a lesser defence, something like, yes, this was a breach of the rule, she should have known better, but she's you know, learned her lesson this time. But uh, theoretically, they could, they could throw the book at her if they were of a mind to. What's the bo- what, what does it look like when you have the book thrown at you? Well, the last time a minister was before the Privileges Committee for your good friend was my good friend, and <laughs> Winston. And at that time, the the committee voted that he be censured by the House. Yeah. When it came to a vote in the House, he was the only person to take a sort of a strong anti view. He wasn't going to take any notice of it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it is a mark on your reputation if you're censured yeah. by your colleagues or that sort of thing. Doesn't actually mean a hell of a lot in the sort of the big outside world, yeah. but it does does sort of you know stay on your reputation forever. Because given that they it's plain politics that probably got them into this problem, they can't quite afford to, to play politics and just absolve her, can they? Because it, no, they can't. I don't think no, mm. no. I think it's interesting that they've decided to actually have her front to a public hearing, which is I think a more positive step than I might have imagined. Uh, they've got a problem though. Because we're close to the election, they can't sort of just kick this, you know, keep just kicking this for touch. They've got to come to a solution sooner or later, and yeah. desirably before the election, and then they've got to take that back to the House where it can be debated. So I suspect, as I say, that the, the solution will be somewhere between a mm. censure and a slap on the wrists, but, you know, nothing, yeah. nothing too serious. Hardly a, hardly a flawless week for National either, though, was it, with the, the, no, whole, no. Bi- the bilingual signs thing? It's just... Uh, yeah, what, what are you, you, you've actually written a piece about this, but they basically should stop taking the bait from Labour, I think, as you put it. Yeah. yeah, well, Labor, I think Labour's got a very smart tactic. of if, if Labour holds all its cards to its own chest. We don't actually know where they stand on the major issues, but they pick up everything National does and sort of turn it into a challenge, and then National rises to the bait. So the stupid comment by Simeon Brown about um, uh, bilingual road signs, which should she him sort of get left out of cabinet forever if they ever get into office, suddenly gets <laughs> suddenly gets elevated into a big debate about National's attitude to race relations, not because of the original comment, but because of the way they reacted. The stuff about prescription charges and um, Luxon saying, "Well, we would not get rid of them; we'd have a much more targeted approach, uh, so that those who need to benefit from no prescription charges do, whereas those that it doesn't matter for don't." suddenly gets turned around on the whole question of contraception, not into whether he's for contraception or against contraception, but into whether women's health issues are important to him and they're not. And again, National gets itself into a hole entirely of its own making. And well, how do the they avoid that, that stuff? Fires, do they just ignore it and just say, well, that's ridiculous? Well, they've got to be disciplined and ignore it, actually. You know, what they've got to focus on is their message and, and the sort of vision they want to put to electors 
over the next four months about what a national-led government would do and look like, rather than spend their whole time having to bat off attacks from Labour about the things they're against. Uh, if they keep doing that, uh, they're, they're really possums caught in the headlines. Again, how, how, how far can Labour play that card? Because and if all they're doing is chipping away and pl- pl- you know playing the cheap shot sort of thing, in the end, doesn't it make them look like, well, hang on a minute, where are your ideas you've been in for six exactly. years? Yeah, and I think that's the risk for Labour. And I think Labour seems to me to be becoming more and more virulent on the attack for National. And I think there will be people starting to say, well, suddenly you've upped the tempo attacking National. What about you guys? What have you done for the last six years? Does this mean that you've got nothing more to offer? You know, you've blown all your dash, so to speak, and are now going to spend your time attacking the opposition. So it's a very, I think Labour's got to be very careful. As you say, it doesn't overplay its hand. It's entitled to expose what it sees as weaknesses on the other side. But I think people will also want to know, but if we vote for you guys, what are you going to do in the next three years? What's, you know, what's yeah. your big agenda, rather than what you don't like about the other side? Does that mean that National have to resist the name-calling type of ideas as well? I think they do, and I think if they made a sort of a virtue of it, they could, they could score some brownie points with the public, provided they've got something positive to say instead. But at the moment, National seems too focused on rebutting Labour's attacks than actually mm-hmm. putting out its own positive message. And yet... I see that in New Plymouth at the end of last week, for instance, um, Luxon booked a room for 110 people and over 400 turned up. So there's people out there wanting to hear what National's got to say. Mm. It's just got to make sure it's got a message to give them that's positive. Yeah, always book a room smaller than you need, I think. Well, that's true too, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Was that one of your... (laughs) Hey, uh, the thing that actually drew this into focus, I thought was that ridiculous tweet uh, from uh, Megan Woods comparing... Oh. Um, compared, you know, and I, that was, and I think it was just one. It was stupid because actually, the, the, the status quo that exists is exactly what she's describing, and they're the government yeah. right now. So they're. Yeah. But does this stuff actually really matter for anyone other than diehard party faithful who either are turned against it or totally turned on by this stuff? I, no, it doesn't. I think where it has a, an impact, though, is if if. It paints a picture. If the opposition, in this case, looks all at sixes and sevens and doesn't know really whether it's coming or going, then it starts to impact upon their credibility. But the sort of line that Megan Woods used um, would excite and sort of delight the diehards. It would annoy the enemies even more intensely. But would it change anyone's mind? I don't think so. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it actually turns people off? Oh, generally, I think a lot of uncommitted voters mm. will just find the behaviour of both really over the last week, the way that they've both sort of sniped at each other is just incredibly off-putting. And I wouldn't be surprised if the next poll sees a bit of a bump for some of the minor parties as a consequence of the protest vote. Yeah. What do you think um, What do you think is actually going to make the, turn those undecided voters? Because the interesting thing about the polls is that they, they, they're only about people who've prepared to say who they're voting for. Mm, mm. And uh, they often don't tell you what the undecided is, or it's sort of in the small print. Yeah. What's the, what's the key to winning over those people? Cause, well, gen- generally speaking, the undecideds ultimately will break the same way as the decideds in the same proportions. But if you look at the polls at the moment, go just go beyond the immediate figures, there's an underlying trend there, which is a slow, steady movement to the centre-right. Yeah. It's been there for, with the exception of the first couple of months of this year, for about a year. Now, that's starting to build a little bit. It's still not enough to get them over the top in their own right, but it's, it's starting to move in that direction. So I think from the National Party's point of view, it simply needs to focus on what it will do in government if, it, if it's successful. Mm. From Labour's point of view, it needs to counter that, not with sniping attacks, but with here's our agenda for the third term. You know, the big issue a lot of people are worried about at the moment is what's the Labour government going to do on tax? 
they won't tell us. Uh, they keep saying, oh, there'll be an announcement in due course, an announcement mm. in due course. Well, you know, I think they need to get some of these things that people are a bit wary and suspicious of out there. You know, what are they going to do about three waters after the election? What are they going to do about all the things that Hipkins put on hold after the election? And I think they're the questions they need to be answering rather than just sniping at national. Just on the sniping sort of politics, I remember when I was living in Australia, um, there were, that Paul Keating did win an election basically just on saying that the other lot were horrible and calling names. He went really aggressive. And I don't remember, I remember thinking that he was going to lose and he yeah. just was unrelentingly negative and actually it, it carried the day for him. So, yeah. And the reason I'm laughing is because a week after he won, he came across to New Zealand and I was still a member of the Labour Party at that point. Yeah. And he came and addressed the Labour caucus about the, the recent election. And I actually put that proposition to him and I said, so, you know, you, you know why, why, why do you think you won given the way the campaign went? And he looked at me with a straight face and said, because we were unrelentingly positive in our messages. Oh, my God. I'm glad you remember it because he was. He was unrelentingly bitchy and negative, wasn't he? Absolutely, yes. But he just said it was such a straight face that the fact is we ran a positive campaign. Pointing out, pointing out what you know, the deficiencies of our opponents. I'm, I'm glad. I, I'm glad I asked you that question because you were right on the spot for that. Oh, that's a, that's a, I, I do remember that, and I just remember being thinking, "Oh my God, really yep. bitching and being negative works sometimes." So yes, I, yes. Mm. But he, he he was not having a bar of it. He'd been utterly positive, and uh, I can see him now standing there, totally poker faced, saying this to our court. <laughs> oh God, amazing! Hey, Peter, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks, Tim. For more from the Weekend Collective, listen live to News Talk ZB weekends from 3 p.m. or follow the podcast on iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will love our New Zealand Herald podcast, The Little Things, hosted by me, Francesca Rudkin, and my good friend, Louise Airy. We focus on all the little things that you can do to make a positive impact on your life and to cut through the confusion from the health and wellness industry. Join us every Saturday to hear from the experts for all the tips and advice you need. Just search The Little Things on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.